Hello and welcome to WeChats. I am your host, Tania Fuentes, and today we celebrate St. Andrew's Day, one of Scotland's biggest holidays, in which its patron saint is commemorated. Today's guest is Reverend Susan Denon from Christ Church, Mexico, who will talk about how St. Andrew became Scotland's symbol. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for inviting me and making me actually look up Andrew. Uh, what would you like to know? Well, why don't you start telling us a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about uh, St. Andrew and why uh, he's so important in uh, Scottish culture. I am right now, I, I'm a priest. I'm an Anglican priest here at Mexico City. I studied at the St. Andrew's Seminary, which is the oldest seminary in Latin America believe it or not, the Anglican one here in Mexico City. I also did study in the United States in Cambridge. Uh, and right now I've been an assistant priest for 273 years at Christ Church right now. Uh, I was the director of Christian education for a very long time. And I, my mother was a Scot. Her, my second apellido is Davidson. My several greats and a grandfather came over, Peter Davidson. He was, according to family legend, was impressed into the British Navy in 1812. Uh, there are two stories that when they docked in Nova Scotia that he jumped ship, Wiley Scott. I actually think he just went for the free passage because the two stories are <laughs> that he got into the United States either under a hay cart with gold coins sold into, sewn into his belt, which I seriously doubt, or the other one was because he was a blacksmith and he went with his tools, which are worth gold, into his belt. That he was a blacksmith, that he went into the British Navy in 1812 and came into... Uh, Nova Scotia, jumped ship and made it to the U.S., I have no doubt. Wiley Scott, free passage. Uh, well, whatever the actual version is, either way, it sounds like an amazing adventure. <laughs> oh, it's, it's the one story of many. Most of us have several of those in our history as to how they got from Scotland to the United States or Mexico. I just tell you that one so you can laugh. I've lived here in Mexico for 40 years. I've been a teacher for 20-odd. Uh, as I told you, I taught in Tec de Monterrey for many, many years. I was teaching at Olinka for many years, and right now I'm kind of semi-retired. Wow. Well, that's an impressive career. Thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. Um, so your specialty is um, religious studies, right? Uh, well, uh, I, my specialty is very weird because my bachelor's degree is in Latin American studies and economics. And then I went back to school and I studied theology. And everybody thought that I was very, very strange, quite, quite, quite crazy, which is correct, until 911 happened. And they realized that if you know economics and political science, you can understand what's been happening in the Middle East. Great. 
Yes, of course, you need like to have the whole uh, context you know, to understand not only history, but our current situation. Yeah. Exactly. Great. So let's talk about uh, St. Andrew. So who was he? What did he do? Why is he so important? St. Andrew was born, we're not sure because he was not... Uh, St. Andrew, like St. Peter, and like just about all of the apostles, were not important people, okay? So there's a lot of this, what I'm going to tell you is mostly legend. Supposedly he was born between AD 5 and AD 10 in Bethsaida in Galilee. The first thing that's striking about him is the name Andrew, which is a Greek name. It's not Hebrew. And Galilee at that point uh, had a great deal of Greek influence. And to let you know, it, it's just like here in Mexico, the difference between people who can only speak Spanish and the people who speak Spanish and English. Just because his name was Greek, and back then there was a form of Greek called koine, which was just like what I refer to it as uh, web English, which is very informal, but most of us speak, and that's how we can communicate. Koine was web English of its day, and the fact that his name is Greek tells us that his family was exposed to, and probably him, to Greek language and Greek culture, which means he was not exactly a completely ignorant peasant, okay, to begin with. Uh, by tradition, his brother was Peter, St. Peter, okay? And there are two stories because the Gospels, as you know, are four. There are three that are called the synoptics, which are kind of saying the same thing 20 times over. And then there's St. John, according to the synoptics, which are Matthew, Luke, and, uh, Matthew Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus went along and he found them fishing and he invited them to become fishers of men, okay, which you've heard of. And they basically, Peter and Andrew dropped their nets and followed Jesus. The other story is that, and this is in the Gospel of John, that uh, he was a follower of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist went, there goes the Lamb of God. And he just simply dropped everything and followed Jesus. But one of his big titles is Protocletus, that's Greek, which means he was the first called. Of all of the apostles, he was the first one that Jesus called. He was the first one who went out in the story in John. He went to his brother Peter and said, hey, that's the guy. So he was the first missionary okay, of all of the Gospels. Uh, he was one of the inner circle of Jesus' apostles, but he was also, and I think this is perfect for him being the patron of Scotland, is that he was the most practical. You've got 5,000 people here. There's no food. Go find some food. He was always going, do we build a tent? Do we find some food? Do we? You know, Jesus did a... A miracle, of course, as we know. But Andrew was always the one going, ah, uh, there's a problem. Which is why 
He's so beautifully Scottish. Okay, that's great. So he was resourceful and the, the problem solver of the group. Well, he was the one who knew there was a problem, which is, <laughs> is kind of the fun about him. And he, he was the inner circle. He was there all along. Uh, after Jesus is, was crucified, he, the apostles scattered all over the, the Middle East, okay? Depends on which one. He went to Scythia. I'm reading this because I can't remember all the names, okay? And he preached along the Black Sea. He went as far as Russia. And he's the patron saint of Ukraine, Romani, Romani, Romania, sorry, wrong language, Russia, and Thrace. He was the founder of the sea, which is where bishops are, in Byzantium. Uh, and he is the patron saint of the patriarch of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. They consider themselves the heirs of St. Andrew. Uh, but he kept going, he went back and forth uh, all through Asia Minor and Greece. And in Greece, I love this phrase. I got this from the BBC. He forced his way through a forest inhabited by wolves, bears, and tigers. Doesn't that remind <laughs> you of lions and tigers and bears? Oh my! <laughs> That's what the BBC said. And Patras was in Greece. He was offered the choice of being sacrificed to the gods or being wounded or scourged, which means whipped, and crucified. And you, we all know that the X is St. Andrew's cross, okay? He, like his brother Peter, did not want to be uh, martyred on a cross as same as Jesus because they did not feel that they were up to Jesus' standards. It's, it's a very common misunderstanding that the upside-down cross is a satanic cross. It's actually the cross of St. Peter. He asked to be crucified upside-down. He was crucified on the X-shaped cross, but he was not nailed to it. He was tied to it. And But wouldn't that make it like super slow, you know, like must have been a horrible process. What we don't realize is that Jesus died very quickly. Normally, even when they were nailed to a cross, it took them about three days. And it did take St. Andrew three days to die. Okay. Anyway, the, the business with the X-shaped cross, when it becomes the St. Andrew thing, is not until the Middle Ages. What I'm telling you is a lot of legend. Okay. His relics, a lot of them are in Patras and Greece. There's also, oddly enough, St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cathedral in Edinburgh, okay? And there are bits and pieces of him in Poland and other places, okay? Have you ever been to St. Andrew's in yes. Scotland? Yes, well, you see, just the only piece left is the St. Rule's Tower. I was not able to get into that because I went uh, in February, so I never got into it. But the legend goes that St. Rule, or Regulus, had a dream, and he was told to hide the bones, which at that point were still in Patras in Greece. And he took them 
to Constantinople, okay, around 357, and they were in the Church of the Holy Apostles. And then Regulus had another dream, and he was uh, told to take them to the ends of the earth, which I don't know if you know the phrase, here be dragons. The ends of the earth is where here be dragons. It was a very, very scary place. And we're talking about Greece, the, you know, the civilized world. Anyway, he was told, oddly enough, to take the bones uh, and travel with them on a ship until he was shipwrecked. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> That's a weird mission. And he was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked off of Fife in what we now call mm. St. Andrews. That's how he got And that's there. where he came on land. That's how he got there. And according, supposedly, he had a kneecap, an arm bone, three fingers, and a tooth. Okay? Just one tooth. This <laughs> is the legend. Just one tooth. Remember, these guys got spread all over the place. Uh, then there used to be somebody in every Roman Catholic diocese whose job was to break saints' bones. No. Have you ever heard that one? Every altar needs to have a saint's relic in it. So there used to be a guy in every diocese, according to legend, who his job was to splinter saints' bones so that every altar could have a little bit of bone in it. <laughs> and how did they decide which bone goes to which... About legends, I'm not saying that. that sounds like an interesting job. Like, what do you do for a living? I just like split pain. I splinter bones. <laughs> okay, so that's how he got anyway, to, to five then. That's how he got to five. Now, that's what the legend said with St. Rule, as you, you know. Uh, according to better sources, okay. Uh, Regulus, or St. Rule, gave the bones to King Angus, Fregosa, or Fregosa, I, my Scots is not good. Anyway, who died in 761, okay? The most probable thing is that when St. Augustine came in 732, he brought them, okay? And in Bishop Ock of Hexham, brought them all the way to Fife, okay? Because Bishop Aka, which I was not able to find out what he did wrong, okay? But he was run out of Hexham. And he was a collector of bones and he brought them with them. And there is a special shrine in Patras in Greece where they have his ex-cross, okay? That's the 30th. How did he become the Scotland's patron saint? Besides the fact that it was practical. Yeah, that was the next question. How? How? Supposedly, Angus, in 832, was leading an army of pigs against the <gasps> Angles. Mm. Okay. No. Led by Ethelstan, okay? Near Ethelstan Ford in East Lothian. And he was about to lose, as we know. And so we've heard this story before. He prayed before the battle, and he told St. Andrew that he would make him the patron saint. 
And on the morning of the battle, the clouds formed a white X against the very blue sky. And by divine... That was the sign he was waiting for. That, that was the sign he was waiting for, like the cross between the, the deer's horns. They did win. Athelstan was killed. And in gratitude, uh, Angus gave the St. Rule's Church all sorts of gifts, ordered that the cross of St. Andrew would be the badge of the Picts. And this is where you get the Cruz Descusata, or Salter, okay? This is where it comes from because it was the white clouds over a blue sky. That's why that is the flag of Scotland, because they won that battle, okay? And in that from then on, he was the patron saint of Scotland. And in 908, the only bishopric that Scotland had was transferred from Abernathy, which was the royal residence, to St. Andrews, which we know today, okay? So that was made pretty much the Canterbury of Scotland from that moment on. But there are things beforehand, I, I don't know if you know about the Synod of Whitby, Whitby, which was 664, which when they decided between the Celtic Church, Celtic, excuse me, yes, mother, okay, mother always said it was with a K, and, and the Roman Catholic Church, they decided against having St. Columba as their patron saint in favor of Andrew, because Andrew A was Peter's brother, mm -hmm. And it was apostle, and apostles are always higher than anybody else, no matter how saintly. And uh, Malcolm Canmore, who was the first king of Scotland, as you know, and Margaret was especially devoted to him. Okay, and the Crusades, he was their patron saint. In 1318, the cathedral was the Canterbury of North, and it was the largest church until the Reformation. In 1411, St. Andrew's University, uh, was founded, and the See of St. Andrews was become a metropolitan, which means it goes up there with Canterbury and Constantinople in 1411. But one of the things about St. Andrew in Scotland is because he was the first to be called to be an apostle, uh, because he was the brother of St. Peter, when the Scots were pleading with the Pope for help against those horrible English people. They did have a superior patron saint because theirs was an apostle and the British one only killed dragons. <laughs> okay, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, if they have you know, like a <laughs> higher connection with someone higher in the hierarchy. Well, he's an apostle. He's a big guy. Uh, what else would you like to know, dear? Well, we were wondering, you know, about that, about the legend. How, how do we know about all this? Are there, like, official, you know, like, writings or scriptures or something? Or is it mostly legend about the battle and all this connection with the... Uh... Uh, well, the battle and all of this, it's, it's all mostly legend because these people are so... Uh, they were not important in their time. To give you an idea... Jesus is not mentioned in any contemporary manuscript. We know about Jesus because a man named Josephus, who, who turned, he went from being a Jewish general to being a Roman, 
uh, wrote the antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish wars. And he, in that one, mentions St. James the Just, okay, as the brother of Jesus Christ. So we can only prove that Jesus was a historical person because we have a third-person mention of it, okay? St. Andrew, uh, because he's an apostle, and apostles, we tend to think of saints as being priests and such, but apostles like St. Andrew had a much more important function. They were teachers, which you would like. <laughs> in, the early, in the early church, it was much more important to be a teacher. What, what we see is the waving my hands around and blessing people as important was not as important as the teacher who could teach the men message, which is why Andrew and Peter and folks like that are so important because they learned from Jesus and they transmitted it, which is much more important than blessing water and wine to do it. Anyway. Uh, okay, and they, they learned from the source, right? Like directly from Jesus. So Exactly, but, but in, in the early church, because we tend to see, oh, he founded the bishopric of Constantinople and he was a bishop. No, that was not his function. It, it, that was organizational what is important about him is that he was a teacher. Where the most important job ever. Uh, teachers are very important, aren't we? Underpaid, but we work hard. Yeah, we are. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, when the, the crowns were united with King James I and VI, the Scots complained mightily because St. Andrew's Cross was underneath St. George's, okay? So for quite a while, uh, from the Union of Parliaments in 1707, uh, the Scots did not use the Union Jack. The Red Lion, as we all know, is the proper royal flag. The thistle is a symbol of Scotland, but the national flag is St. Andrew's Cross. And it was even used at, Saint, at uh, Bannockburn, Stirling, okay? because they've been using it for a long time. And Robert the Bruce, as my mother would call him, R the B, went to St. <laughs> Andrews and placed a parchment on the altar thanking St. Andrews for his victory at Bannockburn. And William Wallace went, St. Andrews modus speed, my Scots is not good, but it means may St. Andrews support us. Mary, Queen of Scots, used his banner, okay? And, and how did we get St. Andrew's Day? He's been on the calendar for forever, but as oddly enough, as Crystal Zapata would say, you ungrateful colonials. <laughs> uh, where we, the first St. Andrew's Society, because you made me look it up, is not yes. in Scotland. It's in South Carolina. Is it? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, St. Andrew's Society of Charleston, South Carolina, was founded in 1729. And it was Scottish immigrants, obviously. It's the oldest society of its type. And they were a society to help widows and orphans. The second one to be founded was 1756 in New York. But these were the ones who started the celebration of St. Andrew's Day. 
and all the wonderful food and the dancing. So the celebration didn't start in Scotland then? No. And no. what really got me was uh, Kirken of the Tartan was begun in Carolinas in 1945. It's relatively new. Mm. It is. That's recent, quite recent, yes. That, that's, that's quite recent. I would have thought that it was ancient, but no, it's relatively new, and it was started uh, from these societies in the U.S., and you know, they've multiplied all over the place, which is good. Yeah, that's, that's great. No, I, I, I would have never guessed that the celebration started in North Carolina, actually. That's... South Carolina. South, South Carolina, sorry. Yeah, that's very surprising. So they start with the tradition of the, the actual celebration, like the food and the dancing and everything as we know it today. The food and the dancing. I remember as a child, we would go to Nova Scotia uh, every, every summer because my dad ran a camp there in geology. And the Highland Games in Nova Scotia are huge. And we would have the dancing and the tossing of the caber and, and you name it. But as my mother would say, there's no Scot as Scottish as someone who's not in Scotland. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask you. Like, do you think that this was like, I don't know, like a way to feel like connected, you know, out of like being homesick? Or why is it that people that are away feel like more inclined to uh, create this kind of celebrations or like find this? special i don't know is it like to rescue their identity or like feel connected or how why do you think this happened well as somebody who's lived here for 40 years okay uh one of the truest words uh my husband ever told me was i said you know i'll never fit in and he told you you never will because you will always have an accent you will always see things differently that's not bad that's good When about five years ago, I went to Edinburgh with my son, who's been raised in Mexico. And we'd been in Edinburgh, I don't even think 12 hours. And he looked to me and he said, Mom, I get it. And what it was is all the little funky things we do all our lives that we don't realize we're doing, the sense of humor, the way we like our food, the way we treat each other, All of this, I now realize that even though my family's been out of Scotland for centuries, okay, but we still have it. It's, it's a, a different way of seeing things. And the tartan, uh, I love to hear bagpipes. When my neighbors are being very naughty, I turn up the, the bagpipe music just to make them suffer. <laughs> I love it. Take that. But it's, uh, I, I don't know enough about genealogy, but I do know that I see things differently than in your average Mexican, despite all the years I've been here. What I didn't realize was that my children do the same thing. So it's, it's this is why it is so important. It's not that I'm better or worse, but this is part of me. Right now, we're in, in the middle of November, and I was raised in New England, and I've got a clam chowder on the stove. So it, it's, it's what makes us us, is to enjoy these differences. It's to enjoy stories like Wee Gillis. Do you remember Wee Gillis? 
no, 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 no. Oh, you've got to read it. It's a wonderful children's story no. about stalking uh, deer, stags in the highlands. And it was read to me a thousand times. And when I was, yeah, when I was a child, because ballet classes were expensive, I was taken to Scottish country dancing. Oh. It was free. No, and it's so beautiful. I, I, I love it. I wish I could dance. <laughs> it is difficult, isn't it? I can't do it anymore. Okay. But the, the whole point is that every, every society has different wonderful things. You may hate haggis, but I've kind of found that I can tell somebody is a true Scot even though you've been out of the country for 300 years, because we lack, actually like oatmeal. For the record, I do love haggis. And it, it was uh, so strange when I first tried it. You know, I was, um, I had recently moved to, to Glasgow and uh, I have another Mexican friend who tried it before me. And well, we were aware of what it was. I knew what it was. And I was like, there's no way I'm eating that. Like, no, no, no. And then he tried it and told me, you know, it's actually very, very good. And trust me, because if I'm telling you this as a Mexican, that we have like similar taste in food, uh, trust me, you'll like it. And I was like, okay, okay. I'll try to clear my mind of any prejudices and I'll try it. And when I did, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I loved it. Like really, really loved it. And So I'm really looking forward to having it this St. Andrew's Day. I'm like really excited about it because it's hard to find it here, right? So we get like this unique chance to have it. So I'm like very excited. I still have one frozen that I saved for St. Andrew's yes. Day. <laughs> no, but but it's, it's one of the, the haggis, one of the things about us is it's so Scottish because it's making something delicious out of nothing. Because when you go to Scotland, it's, it's miles and miles of nothing. And how did they manage to create such an incredible culture, so many things? Because for a place that has so underpopulated, so few people, and so many miles of nothing, they've created this incredible culture, literature, everything. It's so rich. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I love about it. Yeah, that's that's great. So, do you know if there's any like variations around the societies around the world? Like, do you think we do things differently from I don't know the society in Singapore or anywhere else? Because you know, like cultural things like get modified with time and like influences from the place you're living in. So, I wonder how is it to celebrate it elsewhere. Quite frankly, I don't know, but it, the central thing has always been celebrating Scottish heritage, which is, uh, as for too many times because of the clearances, you know, Scotland's greatest export was Scots. And a lot of them left, I mean, they were literally pushed out. I don't know if you've ever been to Kelso, but when I was in Kelso, And I looked at it and I said, how on earth could you leave a place this beautiful and go to Nova Scotia and then to northeastern Pennsylvania, which is not exactly pretty? And the answer was they were starving. 
when you leave because you have to leave, the tie to home is so deep because you, you want to go home, and especially the ones who left before 1900, once you left, you are not coming back. So you, you, you held on to St. Andrews, your bagpipes, your haggis, everything else as, as tightly as you could because that was your identity and that was your home. And today, you know, I can pick up my iPhone and, and call my old friends all over the world for nothing, for email. But imagine in, in 1750, when I left Scotland, I was gone for good. There was no way I could go back. And so the longing for home when you were forced out is so very deep, which is why I'm very sure you go to Singapore or you go to anywhere in the world, and it's this, this cling on to our identity. Well, yeah, that's, that's very deep. And yeah, you're right. It's amazing. And yeah, no, it, it is very deep, I'm thinking. Well, it, it's, it's beautiful if you think about it, you know, how you can create a new community that is all tied by this thing in common that is the longing for home and for your own things, right? And as you said, it happened with your own children. I'm guessing like people that migrated back then would have wanted their children to still feel that connection to their homeland, even though they were raised abroad, right? And to keep everything alive. Slightly different subject, I will tell you, it's one of the things about Christchurch is I've been raising my children, had been, you know, my youngest is about to hit, my oldest is about to hit 40. Uh, for a couple hours a week, they could speak in their native language, my native language. They could sing the songs that I sang. They could talk with other people who were also bilingual and bicultural. And it's very, very comforting. You don't feel that you're the only one. And this is what's wonderful about St. Andrew's Society and all of these other expat groups is you can be with other people who are living through what you're living through. Yeah, exactly. No, and even for me, I, I mean, it was... So nice when I found a society because as you probably know, I studied in Glasgow and I loved it, like loved it like, and was like one of the best experiences of my life. I made wonderful friends and I, I don't know, I got like really uh, connected to it and I, I loved like all that it meant, you know, like all my, my time there, it meant a lot to me. So when I had to come back, I felt like no one understood what it felt like because I was feeling so homesick and I didn't want to leave, but I had to, because, you know, like I didn't have a, a, a visa. So I had to leave. And when I found this in Andrew society, I was like, Oh, these people know what I'm talking about. And they're, uh, they became like sort of my connection to Scotland, even though I wasn't there anymore. And they were so welcoming because, you know, I, at first I thought like, well, they're going to say like, oh, what are you doing here if you're Mexican? But they were also welcoming and they saw how much I loved Scotland and it was like, yeah, welcome. And to hear the bagpipes again. And it made me feel closer to what I called home in that moment as well. So, so yeah, it, it was a way of reconnecting. And I still feel that way, you know, even though I can't be there 
it always brings happy memories and, and rekindles that connection that I feel. So it's, it's great. So I can imagine if it's so deep for me, how deep it is for someone who's actually from there and feels like, you know, homesick. So it's a, a great thing. Exactly. I understand. Any other questions? Uh, let me see. I, I don't know. Is there anything else you'd like to add about, well, uh, the celebration itself? Well, uh, another thing that comes to mind is when do you think that it like kind of shifted from being a religious celebration to a cultural and more like identity related one? Because I don't know how, how religious it is, you know, because during the celebrations, it's more about the dancing and the food and the Scottish identity. But there's small mention about the saint itself. Oh, I'm very sure that after the Reformation, when St. Andrews was destroyed, because there was apparently, uh, before the Reformation, there were all sorts of celebrations going on and after the reformation it became more of a civil and patriotic thing mm -hmm. and less religious okay so i'm very sure this is more than 300 years old and as i say uh Kirkino the tartan which you know, brought it back to the church is only 1945 so it's more it's it's been at least for a couple hundred years It's been more uh, a civil civic thing, not so much like the Fourth of July, but it, it's it's more we're celebrating the fact that we're Scots and we've got this wonderful culture and we're sharing it. And less, let's go to church and worship St Andrews because one of the things about the Reformation is the Protestant churches do not pray to the saints. You have a patron saint. Yeah, we've got him, as I said, you know, he, he's the, uh, he's practical. He's a symbol of Scotland, but we don't pray to him. We don't worship him. He doesn't have a shrine. It's been destroyed. So I, I would say right around the Reformation, it became more of a civil celebrating our country. So there's no like special service on that day or anything as such? It, it does have a special day. I looked it up. Okay, and normally uh, for St. Andrews at Christ Church, we don't specifically do a service for St. Andrews. They do do one at the seminary because it is the seminary of San Andres, Seminario. Okay, mm -hmm. they do a special one dedicated to him as, as their patron saint. Uh, when we do do something more specific, is usually for Kirkano the Tartan. And we do what we call a Celtic or Celtic Eucharist, which I don't know if you know about, but the Scotland was originally the Celtic church, which is different from the Roman Catholic and different from the Greek. And fortunately in the last 50 years, we've recovered a lot of it because the one thing about the Celtic church is it's very focused on ecology, on the beauty of the world, on caring for the world, It's very focused on the equality of men and women. And 
it's not hierarchical. It's more based on family. And this is something that fortunately we've been recovering because this was the way it was originally in Scotland. Okay. But when, at least here in Mexico, when we do something very specific, it would, it will be Kirkano the Tartan, which is specifically a church thing. But we will go back to the Celtic church and, and all of this, you know, the, the, the importance of people who don't wear white collars, the importance of women, the beauty of the earth. It's focused on the Trinity. It's, it's a much more modern church, and it was suppressed like in like 700 or something or other at the Synod of Whitby. But when you go back to it, it makes so much sense, particularly if you understand Scotland. Yeah, it makes more sense for the modern world, right? It, it does. And, and you're saying that this is something that was lost like 1,300 years ago, and we're finally coming back to see what was so important because it's so focused on... Uh, you, you can see it for the beauty of the earth, the, the importance of every human being. It, it's so modern. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's very nice. When we do one again, I'll make sure you know. Yes. Yes, please, please do. Would love to attend. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add. This, this has been lovely. Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Oh, it's been marvelous. Thank you for inviting me. If you have any more questions, feel free to communicate with me. And when we're able to open up our doors, you guys will be the first ones to know. Because I, I really think that we're going to ask the bagpipers and the cookers and everybody to come because it's going to be so nice to be, to be able to gather together again. I know. We're going to have a huge party once this is over. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Take care. You too. Okay, that was all for today. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Please follow us on social media and share this episode with your friends. Happy St. Andrew's Day. Until next time, bye-bye.